This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. America was in turmoil. Britain's quest for territory, Britain's quest for territory and control prompted young George Washington to enlist. His formal education immediately afforded him the title of major, though he had no experience and little training. The French had claimed both Canada and the Great Lakes. Britain controlled colonies along the eastern seaboard. Both fought for control of the upper Ohio River Valley. Still new and without large forces, the colonists didn't fare well in territorial conflicts. By the time Washington was assigned to defend the area that now consists of Ohio, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Kentucky, the French and British both stood their ground, waiting for the other side to attack first. On May 27th of 1754, Washington and a regiment of roughly 115 men left their encampment. Their orders were to arrive in the Ohio Valley and assist in building a stronghold at Trent's Fort. And the men found the only thing more miserable than traveling through the dense woods under a pitch-black sky was the unrelenting rain. But soon, they would encounter worse. A messenger arrived with bad news during their trip westward through the Appalachian Forest. The French had captured the fort. They had hundreds of soldiers and plenty of supplies— Washington and his troops were walking into a trap. Washington was young, just 21 years old, and he had never been in combat. Determined to take back the fort, he ordered his men to press on. When the men finally reached an open clearing, the exhausted soldiers began setting up camp while Washington planned his attack. They hadn't made camp long when Tanagrisson arrived. He was the leader of the Ohio River Valley Haudenosaunee peoples, called the Iroquois by the French. During his 50-some-odd years, Tanagrisson had become a skilled warrior 
and he was called the Half-King by the British. He warned young Washington that the French already knew he was there and planned to attack. The French and British weren't the only ones in conflict over the area. Several other Native American groups were also looking to take over the valley. Tanagrisson offered a few men to lead the British troops to a small glen near the mountain's crest, where the French search party made camp. Washington sent 75 of the soldiers with the Haudenosaunee, ordering them to stake out the area and await further instruction. Washington and the other 40 soldiers hiked 700 feet up Chestnut Mountain. The unrelenting rain made the trek across the ridge treacherous. By the time they reached the crest on May 28th, they'd lost seven men. Washington spotted the French about the same time that they spotted him. The French soldiers grabbed their muskets, but not fast enough. Within 15 minutes, their corpses lay scattered through the camp. The Haudenosaunee warriors killed 10 soldiers. One Frenchman's head was placed on a pole. For Washington, the attack was a victory. But until then, the British and the French had only been involved in a cold war. His attack started both what we've come to call the French and Indian War here and the Seven Years' War in Europe. Washington became the nation's first president and vowed to do better. Others followed a different plan. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. Aaron Burr Sr. and his wife led a charmed life. Esther Edwards Burr was the daughter of an acclaimed theologian. Aaron Burr Sr.'s place as a prominent Presbyterian minister and president of the College of New Jersey, later known as Princeton, also placed the couple in high standing. They had a daughter, Sarah, and welcomed their son into the world on February 6th of 1756. Great things were expected of Aaron Jr., tragedy struck a year later when Aaron Sr. died. Prominent or not, his death left the family scrambling financially. Esther's father, Jonathan Edwards, took over as the college's president and moved in with the family for economic support. A year later, Esther passed away. Jonathan died not long after. The children's guardian, William Shippen, took them in for a while before sending them to live with their uncle, Timothy Edwards, in Philadelphia. Edwards was a successful lawyer and gave young Aaron the best tutors. When he was old enough to enter school, that tutoring paid off. Aaron excelled in all his academics. At 13, he applied to Princeton. In the 1700s, boys attended college at an early age, though the most prodigious students didn't start until 14 or 15. Some speculated that Aaron's family connections with the school had awarded him a spot, but he proved he could keep up with the best in his class. College suited him. At 16, Aaron graduated with a Bachelor of Arts and continued his education in theology before studying law. However, there were no law schools in North America until the end of the 1700s. To become a lawyer, he had to serve as an apprentice. Eventually, Burr moved to Connecticut for his postgraduate studies. News of the revolution interrupted those plans. For young men, war presented an opportunity if they survived. Burr saw the potential to make connections that would fast-track his career. He put his studies on hold and enlisted in the Continental Army, starting as a volunteer under Benedict Arnold. He rose through the ranks, becoming General Richard Montgomery's aide-de-camp, a position akin to a senior officer and assistant. The troops marched to Quebec, though the invasion was not as successful as anyone had hoped. 
During a battle on December 31st of 1775, Montgomery was fatally shot and died in Burr's arms. The snow prevented Burr from dragging the general's body off the field for a proper burial. The skirmish also left Benedict Arnold injured. Without commanding officers, Burr found a new assignment with George Washington as his aide-de-camp. The two didn't get along well, and Burr was transferred to assist General Israel Putnam. Under Putnam, Burr distinguished himself, becoming known for his leadership. He saved his entire brigade from capture in New York City. George Washington noted his bravery and promoted Burr to lieutenant colonel in 1777, placing 300 men under his command. At the time, he was just 21 years old. Burr and his men defended themselves against a British-led raid in New Jersey, and during the winter of 1777 to 1778, they protected a pass leading into Valley Forge. All was not victorious, though. Burr and his men suffered a defeat in the Battle of Monmouth in June of 1778. Burr readily supported General Charles Lee, which would end his military career. Lee had retreated from the battle, drawing ire and a reprimand from Washington. Burr cited health issues when he resigned from his command in March of 1779. He retained his hero status when he returned to studying law, though. In 1782, Burr was admitted to the Albany, New York Bar. The year was busy, and Burr made one more life change. Marriage. He had met Theodosia Bartow Prevost five years earlier, in September of 1777, during the war. Burr had just led his men to victory against the British on the outskirts of Hackensack, New Jersey. Theodosia was busy raising her children while her husband, a British soldier, was stationed in Jamaica. Burr rented a room for her until he received orders to go to Valley Forge for the winter. The following year, they met again and engaged in a heated affair. When Burr left the military and returned to his studies, Theodosia kept up correspondence with both Burr and her husband. In 1781, Theodosia received a letter notifying her of her husband's death. She was now free to marry Burr. Their affair only became more scandalous when they announced plans to marry. Burr was ten years younger than Theodosia. The age difference didn't bother him, though. His wife had experience and was highly intelligent. They moved to Albany to start Burr's legal career. As with everything he'd done in life, Burr excelled at his new profession. Along with his success, he earned substantial fees— he and Theodosia furnished their home in style, wore the most fashionable clothes, and threw lavish parties. By 1783, the couple moved to New York City, where Burr became interested in politics. He was elected to the New York Assembly that same year. By 1789, he became New York's Attorney General. He also met another former soldier-turned-lawyer, Alexander Hamilton. For a short time, they shared a law practice— Afterward, the two became adversaries, both in and out of court. Though they remained cordial and professional, neither man liked the other. Then, Burr won a seat in the U.S. Senate from one Philip Schuyler, pushing Hamilton's quiet dislike to open contempt. Schuyler happened to be Hamilton's father-in-law, and Hamilton considered Burr's victory an act of war. Even more irritating to Hamilton was Burr's habit of alternating between the Republican Democrats to the Federalists. Burr had long been a mediator between the parties and found that changing sides benefited his career. 
Theodosia was proud of her husband and worked as hard as he did. She managed not only his law practice, but their affluent home in New York City and a summer residence in Westchester County where she could be closer to relatives. They had four children together. Sadly, only one survived. A daughter, Burr, insisted share her mother's name. He doted on his daughter and ensured that she had an education equal to any man. Young Theodosia could read and write by her sixth birthday and remained a voracious reader throughout her youth. Burr asked his daughter's governess to help establish a school that offered the same level of education to other girls. In 1794, the elder Theodosia died from stomach cancer. Lost without the woman he considered his equal in all ways, Burr grieved deeply. Then, father and daughter threw themselves into their work and promoted their ideals. Aside from women's education, Burr pushed to eliminate slavery and change voting laws to allow those without land the right to vote. He also opened a bank that offered credit to the middle class, not just society's elite. Burr also fought for the freedom of the press, immigrants, and for non-English-descended citizens to run for office. In 1800, he returned to practicing law, taking on America's first murder trial. Perhaps surprisingly, he partnered with Hamilton on the case. Their client, Levi Weeks, had been accused of killing one Elma Sands. The two had had a passionate relationship that raised a few eyebrows. To salvage their reputations, Levi told Elma's cousin that they were eloping. On December 22nd, the two left town. Elma's body was found on January 2nd. The courtroom was packed during the two-day trial. Burr and Hamilton destroyed Elma's reputation, and the jury took less than five minutes to return a not-guilty verdict. Burr decided to return to politics and run for president. Elections worked differently in the early 1800s. Whoever received the most votes became president. The candidate who received the second-most votes became vice president, even if the two were members of different parties. Burr and Thomas Jefferson tied, leaving Congress to decide. An informant told Jefferson that Burr intended to steal the presidency, though Burr seemed content to become vice president. When Jefferson took office, he gave Burr little authority or power. Hamilton reveled in Jefferson's distrust of Burr and happily recounted how the vice president had once stolen a political office in the Senate years before. In 1804, Burr chose to run for governor of New York. But Hamilton's slander and rumor that Burr had run against Jefferson again for president caused Burr's popularity to fall. Burr was furious. He had dedicated years to service and study, and in his opinion, Hamilton's pettiness had all but ended his political career. The tension brewing between the two men had come to a breaking point. The two adversaries exchanged angry letters. Burr accused Hamilton of slander. Hamilton tried to defend himself against the accusations, though he refused to stop publishing articles about Burr's shortcomings. Hamilton insisted that Burr was both dangerous and opportunistic. He adamantly proclaimed that ending Burr's career was his moral and religious duty. Dueling as a way to resolve disagreements was falling out of favor and had become illegal. However, Burr challenged Hamilton, who readily accepted. Both men had been involved in duels in the past. They settled on July 11th of 1804 and met in the early hours at the common dueling grounds in Weehawken, New Jersey. 
There are multiple accounts as to the events that took place. Some eyewitnesses claim that both men fired. Others say that only one shot was fired that day. Hamilton's dueling assistant said that as the two faced off, Hamilton decided that a duel was morally wrong after all, and intentionally missed. It was a common dueling practice to fire a shot into the ground or another location, preserving the men's honor while ending the duel. But Burr's dueling assistant said that Hamilton simply missed, and that Burr returned fire. Either way, the bullet penetrated Hamilton's stomach and lodged near his spine. He died the following afternoon. Burr was charged with murder. The charges didn't stick, though. His political allies pushed to have them all dropped. Burr's former title of vice president offered him immunity from prosecution until his term ended in 1805. Fighting the charges took a toll, though. Burr's reputation was in tatters, and the legal fight had strained his finances. So, Burr headed to the newly acquired U.S. territory from the Louisiana Purchase, where he met with James Wilkerson, the U.S. Army's commander-in-chief and the territory's governor. Together, the men planned to take over the land and turn it into their own personal empire, separate from the United States. As the Army's commander, Wilkerson agreed to provide the manpower needed to seize the territory from the U.S. and the indigenous peoples who actually lived there. Burr wrote to and met with contacts for support. While he was still the vice president, Burr secretly contacted Anthony Mary, Britain's minister to the U.S., and floated the idea that he could help them conquer the U.S. Western Territory. But the British weren't interested in cooperating in this act of treason. When Burr's term as vice president ended in 1805, he resumed visiting towns and cities to gain endorsement for his plans, including buy-in from a former U.S. senator. One Herman Blennerhassett, a wealthy lawyer and plantation owner, signed on, becoming one of Burr's most trusted allies. Several influential and prominent New Orleans business owners wanted to take over Mexican territory and add it to the Louisiana Territory. They agreed to support Burr's plan. If they succeeded, Burr would become the territory's leader, perhaps emperor. But all his travels and meetings hadn't gone unnoticed, and by the end of 1805, Rumors of a revolution had spread to the East Coast. A Philadelphia newspaper speculated that Burr and British allies planned to use military might to take Mexican territory. They weren't far from the truth. Burr dismissed the rumors, though it wasn't long before he left for Blennerhassett's private island in the Ohio River, where he and fellow co-conspirators met in early 1806. With the plan moving along just as expected, Burr wrote to Wilkerson in August. When he received that letter in October, the commander reconsidered his part and backed out. The consequences outweighed the rewards. Knowing Burr planned to go forward with treason, Wilkerson made his own plan to save himself from the fallout. Rumors of treason spread over the country and Europe. Courts in Kentucky, where Burr had been actively raising support and supplies, charged Burr with treason three times, but he was acquitted in each instance. Then, on December 9th, the militia found supplies that backed up the rumors aboard Burr's ships. By the time the militia descended on Blennerhassett's island mansion, the remaining co-conspirators had already fled. After ransacking the home and not finding what or whom they had come for, they left. Confident that the scheme could still work, Burr arrived at Blennerhassett's in late December. They had planned for a massive army. Instead, 
only a hundred men came. Undeterred, Burr led the men downriver to Bayou Pierre. There, Burr learned that Wilkerson had betrayed him. He'd written to Jefferson detailing Burr's plan. The local paper had even printed the letter he had written to Wilkerson. Though Burr tried to flee, he was caught in Mobile, Alabama, and returned to Richmond to stand trial for treason in 1807. But months later, Burr was acquitted and walked out of court a free man. The verdict and Burr's actions and intentions are still discussed among scholars today. On January 22nd of 1807, Jefferson maintained that he believed Burr was guilty and announced that opinion to Congress. Burr and Jefferson didn't get along. But then, Jefferson and Chief Justice John Marshall were also at odds. Marshall subpoenaed President Jefferson, insisting he deliver documents that Burr and his lawyers needed to prepare for the case. Jefferson's refusal to acknowledge the subpoena and sending of only a fraction of the requested documents hurt the prosecution. Worse, witnesses for the defense testified that Burr was at least a hundred miles away from Blennerhassett's mansion when troops first gathered. Marshall limited testimony to focus solely on the events on the island. No other letters, meetings, or evidence that the prosecution had was permitted. And treason was punishable by hanging. Though the evidence collected and the letter that Burr had written to Wilkerson were damning, Supreme Court Justice John Marshall chose to stick to a more specific definition of treason as stated in the Constitution. The clause reads, Treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. No person shall be convicted of treason unless on the testimony of two witnesses to the same overt act or on confession in open court. Marshall interpreted that since no two witnesses could attest the Burr was present when the troops gathered, he had not declared war on the United States and was innocent. Jefferson moved to have Marshall impeached. Burr's acquittal came at a cost, though. His reputation followed him, and his political career was over. Several states brought additional charges against him. Burr left the United States, claiming that he feared for his life. While in Europe, he unsuccessfully tried to persuade Britain and France to take part in more plots to seize land in North America. In 1812, another war with Britain seemed inevitable. Burr returned to New York and resumed his legal career. Though he found clients, he had become debt-ridden. He lived a solitary life for years, until meeting the wealthiest widow in America. Burr courted and hastily married Eliza Bowen Jumel in 1833. Four months later, Jumel filed for divorce, claiming adultery and that her husband had mismanaged and frivolously spent much of her inheritance. Jumel hired the best lawyer from a prominent family of lawyers. The young man was more than happy to take her case, and he and Burr's attorney battled out the divorce for nearly three years. Burr died shortly after hearing the verdict on September 14th of 1836. And though he never said it, that young lawyer had to have felt some sense of justice in winning that case against the man who had shot and killed his father, Alexander Hamilton Sr., many years before. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. 
If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring, and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day, as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her. Each in women's petite and plus sizes, and Stafford and Mutual Weave for him, style and comfort for all, even big and tall. Plus, even more for the whole family, like Levi's and Exertion. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. J.C. Penney, make everybody count. Life for farmers is often hard, and conditions in the 1780s in western and central Massachusetts didn't make it any easier. They lived in isolation and suffered from the lack of assistance when their crops failed or falling prices cut into their already meager profits. Jefferson's forward-facing picture of near-utopia in the United States didn't match reality. While other state governments passed pro-debtor laws that forgave debt in some instances, Massachusetts did not. Without such protection, the government seized farmers' land and threw them into debtors' prisons. Under the Articles of Confederation, the central government's power was limited. At the time of its writing, the American colonists were in the midst of a war against a country that they believed ruled unfairly and with tyranny. So, the document's creators ensured that the new central government could not directly tax its citizens. But states could. Massachusetts raised property taxes to pay its creditors. Farmers, most of them revolutionary veterans, had very little currency. Mostly, they bartered with other locals for goods and services. Most of the veterans had been stiffed for their amount of work and service during the war. Some weren't paid at all. Unless they were wounded, they didn't get a pension. The increase in taxes was more than they or their farms could stand. In August of 1786, a band of farmers drafted a document detailing their grievances and sent it along with suggestions to Boston's legislature. The letter was promptly ignored. In Northampton, Captain Joseph Hines took a different approach. He led hundreds of farmers to the local courthouse. In protest, they blocked the doors, preventing judges from entering. Before long, several hundred more people gathered in solidarity. Judges in Worcester met the same resistance. The judges called in the militia to disband the rebels. To their surprise, many of the soldiers joined in on the protest. Their new leaders had employed the same method of government that they had fought to escape. In Pelham, farmer Daniel Shea was fed up. He had bravely fought at Bunker Hill and others, and now he couldn't afford the taxes on the land that he had worked hard to buy. He joined the Farmers' Rebellion. Shea's reputation and bravery earned him respect from the other farmers— 
Initially, he refused to lead them, but eventually agreed. He and the others marched to the courthouse, beating drums and waving weapons until midnight. He also led a group of 600 to Springfield in September of 1796. He wanted to negotiate with General William Shepard to allow the protest, and in return, the group would allow the courts to stay open. But as it turned out, the court was still forced to close due to the lack of willing jurors. While there were other factions of the rebellion, Boston's elite believed Daniel Shea had orchestrated and led the entire thing. Tensions began to rise. Former artillery commander Henry Knox wrote to George Washington with his concerns over the growing revolution. Samuel Adams said that they should do what England had done to rebels, execute them. Still, the farmers had allies in high places. Chief Justice William Whiting claimed that members of the state legislature were building their wealth off of the impoverished farmers. Realizing the protesters would not stop, the legislation offered leniency to those struggling to stay afloat. They also offered rebels amnesty. There was a catch, though. The rebels had to take an oath of loyalty. A few might have known that a recently passed bill allowed sheriffs immunity if they happened to kill rebels and called for stricter punishment for anyone arrested. When the dust settled, the courts added another bill, ordering the death penalty for any militiamen who joined forces with the rebel farmers. Then, in January of 1787, Boston business owners funded Governor Bowdoin's private army. The army's mission was to end the rebellion. The governor called upon the public to join the mission to end the treasonous protests. In response, Shea and the other factions elected to raid Springfield's arsenal on September 25th of that year. General Shepard believed that the rebels wanted to overthrow the government at this point. He anticipated their arrival and called General Ben Lincoln from Worcester to assist. When the general saw the 1,200 approaching rebels, they opened fire, killing two and injuring another 20. The insurgents fled, but sent a message to the army demanding the bodies of their fallen comrades. The generals remained unrelenting, forcing the rebels to retreat. Shea and his wife took refuge with Revolutionary War leader Ethan Allen. Later in 1787, new governor John Hancock pardoned most of the rebels. In 1788, he pardoned Daniel Shea, and new legislation put a cap on debts, cut taxes, and eased the farmers' economic burdens. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Michelle Muto, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimmanMile.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. If tonight's movie night is just what you need, make it special with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. 
Need an easy button to feed your baby? Baby Bretza's Formula Pro Advanced makes a perfectly mixed warm formula bottle automatically at the push of a button. No air bubbles, no fuss. Literally, choose your temp, select your ounces, push start, and you're done. Works with virtually all formulas and bottles. Say goodbye to the 3 a.m. feeding chaos and hello to this revolutionary stress-free solution. Raising a baby is hard enough. Let Baby Bretza make feeding a breeze. Get your Formula Pro Advanced at babybrezza.com. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io/ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.